0: For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Signature of the Designer. Mr. Steele. Thank you, Reg. First of all, thank you for not doing your traditional song before I speak. We'll understand it better by and by. So I was trying to think of an introduction to my sermon today, and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find one, because this topic is huge. This topic is quite literally as large as the universe, but it's also as large as the cell, which, of course, if you dig into the cell, you'll find out it is a very complex and large thing indeed. I'm currently reading a, a book, or I should say listening to a book, because that's how I get most of my, my reading done, on, to and from work leading, uh, listening to audiobooks. It's by Stephen Meyer, and Stephen Meyer, I'm sure many of you have heard of him, he is, uh, he's a, a doctor of philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. He's a former geophysicist and a college professor. And now works directly as the, uh, the director of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. And I'm sure you've seen him at different times. Uh, I know that we have played a few of his uh, few videos here, and, and I'm going to do that again today. He's authored most uh, recently uh, the New York Times bestseller, Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive, Origin of Animal Life, and the Case for Intelligent Design. And then also, the book that I'm currently uh, reading is Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design. And like I said, it's this book that I'm currently going through, and it's it's a very challenging book. It's very challenging, I'm sure, to read. It's even more challenging to listen to. Because there are very complex uh, mathematical and probabilistic theories that he's presenting in this book. And after about 10 minutes of various zeros and ones and so on and so forth, I realize I haven't been listening for a while. And I have to go back and rewind it to try and stay focused on this incredible information. Now, I'm, I'm well aware that I'm not going to understand all of what he's talking about. But I do want to try and glean as much as I can. And so, this book is a challenge to read, to listen to, but it is also a challenge to the evolutionary materialistic mindset that we have in the world. It's a challenge to those um, evolutionary processes and materialistic processes that we see in biology. So, I thought that maybe today we would just take this next hour or so and work through together some of his equations and uh, uh, probabilistic theories, is, is, is that okay with you guys? Maybe you can help me understand it. And then we can all have a nap. No, we're, we're not gonna do that. But I do want to focus on a few key points. Ken's already asleep. A few key points that would, um, I think really add value to our view of the world and uh, give us some more insight into intelligent design. so, like I said, (laughs) this book is challenging to read in places, even more challenging to listen to. But more than that, Meyer's book is a very robust challenge to Darwinian evolution and the evolutionary theory of the origin, specifically, of life. The evidence that Meyer presents is overwhelming. It's affirming, it's liberating for those of us that Reject the notion that the the universe and and life in the universe was created by unguided materialistic processes. It's edifying to us who recognize and see the work of a designer. Now, there's one thing that Maya keeps returning to in the book, and he's he's jumped around in different spheres of. Of science, He's jumped around from physics to biology and chemistry and back again. But this reoccurring theme seems to come to mind. And it is this: um, the, the evolutionary statement, as it were, that says that the organization in the natural world appears designed, but it's not designed. It appears designed, but it's, it's not designed. Don't worry if you don't understand it. That's a little belittling, isn't it? A little patronizing. Don't worry if you don't understand it. It's, it's, it just appears as though it's designed. In fact, evolution mimics design. I don't know how something that's undirected knows how to mimic. Right? But there you have it. That it mimics design without actually being designed. Does that make sense? I mean, the words make sense, right? I'm, I'm communicating the words, but the, the thought behind it doesn't make sense. In fact, one of the leading lights of evolutionary worldview, I'm sure you've heard of him, Dr. Richard Dawkins, who is uh, an Oxford University um, professor, evolutionary biologist, and author, atheist author. He says that biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. But they're not designed. He'll be very quick to add that to the end of any statement before we run off with the word designed that he uses. It's their belief that evolution causes things to look designed even though they're not designed. And this is a vitally important point. It's one that Maya keeps returning to. And he's not not, uh, pulling it apart, at least not at the moment in the book, where I'm at, I'm about halfway through. But he keeps bringing it back around for you to think about it again, think about it again, and and maybe dwell on the ridiculousness of that statement. But it is a vitally important point that Meyer's trying to point out in his book. (coughs) Of course, the counter argument to this worldview is that things appear designed because they were designed or are designed, right? They appear designed because they are designed. And the more complicated the design, the more probable that there is a designer. And that is actually a probabilistic theory that that scales up. The more complicated the system, the more likely it is that there is a designer. And we know this on an intuitive level in the world around us. We see evidences of design, don't we? We we see structures and cars and and cell phones and computers and, and we see railroad tracks and and power grids and roads. Evidence of design. We intuitively know that. We could look at something that's not designed and know, well, that's just kind of a jumbled mess. And we can look over here at a building and a structure that is designed and know that it was designed by somebody. (coughs) So just think about that. There's all these structures and roads and railway tracks and, and electrical grids. Was it here when the pilgrims traveled to the new world? It must have been really exciting to them, must not it? To see the coastline of this new world. And, and, and here is the skyline of, of New York City or, or Plymouth or Boston or whatever. Just waiting for them to walk into and dwell in. It was just, it evolved out of the trees and the rocks and, and so on. It's a ridiculous statement, isn't it? It's laughable. And yet that is one of the natural extensions of evolutionary theory. Why not? It could have happened, but it's preposterous. None of that was here. Why? Because the designers weren't here yet. The designers were not present yet to cause these events and cause these structures to be designed. we use this inbuilt human ability to identify design. And even bu- evolutionary biologists <coughs> will recognize this fact. That we we use this innate skill that we have to problem solve. I use it every day at work. Or I probably should say I used to use it every day at work when I did technical work. But when a computer has failed, well, it, it hasn't functioned according to its programming. Or according to its... Microelectric design. Or because the programmer didn't think that the end user would do that particular thing to the computer. But either way, it didn't follow the pattern of design. Oh, something's wrong. And we have to go and figure out what that is and fix it. We see this natural intuition for understanding the world around us. And we use it so that we can function. So that we know our place in the world. We see an evidence of a designer through the things that have been designed. Yet, when it comes to cellular biology, microcellular biology, we are supposed to just believe that it came about without a designer. That there's only random mutations that take place over a very long period of time. And for the last 150 years, our society has abdicated the science of biology to individuals, to men and women with foolish minds. Foolish minds. Foolish. Now, you you may say, well, (laughs) the scriptures say, don't call any man a fool, right? I don't label them as fools. The Apostle Paul Labels them as fools. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. he says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes are clearly seen by by being understood. By the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without an excuse. And specifically, this word means without a legal defense. They are on trial. They don't know it. They are without a legal defense. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So it would appear that there is a process in the design of God that when we reject the truth, when we reject reality, when we reject the evidence of his design, we must become That is the outcome. Paul may have been looking at the Roman Greek world and looking at their their pantheon of of different gods, different uh, faiths and variations and opposing faiths. But one thing that was there is materialism. That was still there. That was about 700 years old by that point. And that mindset of materialism which Darwin is a, uh, you know, a descendant of, to use a little joke there, materialism, undirected processes, that things just kind of evolved and processed along by themselves from materialistic causes. That was there. And so when he's looking at that world, I would imagine looking at our world, he'd say, oh, hasn't changed any, has it? It's the same. So he may have looked around at this confusing world, but he's describing our confusing world. And one that has become futile in its nature. What Paul is describing is a world that has lost the ability to understand truth. It's lost the ability to see design when there's a clear evidence of design. And when we reject this fundamental truth, we come up with vain and futile theories about life and its origin, and say silly things, ridiculous things. Well, it appears designed, but it wasn't actually designed. Like this building. It appears designed, but it wasn't actually designed. Sure. Foolish things. Futile theories. In an interview with, uh, I think we may have played it here one time, an interview with, uh, in Expelled, no intelligence allowed, Dr. Richard Dawkins. Everybody heard of Richard Dawkins? I sometimes think he's an appropriately named fellow. Bit of a dog. But, you know, he's the author of uh, The God Delusion, one of his, uh, his books arguing um, for Darwinian means for the uh, for, for life that we have. And he was asked about the evidence of design in, uh, you know, that we do see, and that this a certain level he would agree with. And he said this, it could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology, and designed a form of life that they seeded perhaps... Uh, onto this planet and I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of biochemistry, molecular biology you might find a signature of some sort of designer so the aliens did it maybe we shall, should tell President Trump that what the aliens did and he'll take care of that too The aliens did it. When pressed on this point, Dawkins said that if he were to accept the evidence of a signature of some sort of designer, it would not be the God of the Bible. It could be aliens, of which there is no evidence that they exist, right? No evidence that aliens exist. It could be them, But not God. This is his sophisticated, eloquently defined theory of how life developed on this planet. It's one of them, I suppose. He said, No, nothing like that could not possibly be God. So, there could be evidence of a designer, but not the God. Of the Bible, and so even within this, but it's interesting within this ardent atheist, he still uh, has a little caveat in there, right? Well, uh, if we do find design, it was the aliens. So he's he's trying to, um, what, manipulate the answer, right? He's trying to to say, well, if you find design and you prove it, okay, that's fine. But then the aliens. Paul goes a step further. It's not just that these modern scientists are blinded to God's creative power. It's more insidious than that. Remember what Paul says. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. And it's interesting. Paul says it's manifest in them. And one of the leading areas of biological research is in the human genome. And why is that? Well, because we want to live forever. Right? We want to solve medical problems. We want to heal people. We want to do all these good things for humanity, extend life, and so on. And yet, within that study, God said, it's right there. I have placed it in them, in their cells, right there, in their own cells. You know, there was a time when science thought that the cell was a blob of protoplasm, and it just kind of did stuff. That was the technical term at the time. And out of necessity, as they called it, too, which I find is a hilarious statement to say, well, out of necessity, this particular function does this. Well, what you're saying is you don't know how it does it. It just does it, right? But they have this clever technical term called necessity. But it just does what it does. It's a blob of protoplasm. (laughs) No explanation to it. And the argument goes... Well then, if that was the case, and that was their understanding of cells, then I guess there's room for evolutionary biology. But as we start to dig into the cell, as we get to the 20th century, and biologists started to realize that there's a whole molecular world going on inside the cell, then it presents a whole new set of questions. A world that has structure. Has machines that has hundreds of functioning parts, overwhelming evidence of design, and I would say proof of design. And at the heart of it all is the core of what Stephen Myers is talking in his book, talking about in his book. He calls the signature in the cell DNA, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. Never say that word right. And I think Brian has a picture, maybe. There's a compressed version of it. DNA, the double helix. And, you know, we're, we're so familiar with that. We see it in all kinds of places. It's, it's used as works of art and pictures and wallpapers on computers. And, of course, it's the source of all kinds of research that's going on right now. <laughs> Again, for medical reasons and just for exploration reasons, trying to understand this DNA molecule. So DNA, Bill Gates called DNA, and others have called it the most efficient and powerful programming language or code in existence. And these are, you know, Bill Gates kind of made a lot of money off operating systems and code. And this is the most powerful programming code or language in existence. In fact, the information in DNA is so powerful that only now, in our information age, can we understand it. And this is one of the things that Myers is trying to help us to understand, is that because we have developed rudimentary computer science, because we're not advanced yet, in spite of all of our clever gadgets, phones, and internet communication. We're just starting to scratch the surface of what binary code can do for it. And so all along, as we are, you know, thinking so highly of ourselves, this DNA code has been powering life, life in each and every cell. Within the last hundred years, We have, as a civilization, developed our own digital code, as I said, binary or even machine code. And yet inside of us, inside each and every cell of our body, is a far superior code, far superior than any that we could have imagined. Think about this. All along, while we labored and struggled in civilization, in our long history as a race, through wars and famines and persecutions and... You know, hitting one another with rocks and bows and arrows and all of our great engineering skill and, and accomplishments. All the while, we're, we're doing that, desperately clawing our way to this civilization that we have now with our advanced technology. The DNA in the cell has been functioning, encoding, and re-encoding information in ourselves and is the most advanced technology in the universe and that's right under our noses that goes right back to what paul said it's evident in us and i'm not saying that paul had an idea of the cell or dna but god did and when he was inspired paul to write those words they are so fitting for the world that we live in today and encouraging to us. When we are finally advanced enough as a civilization to see his previously invisible work, what do we do? We praise God, right? No. Not as a culture. I think I saw one statistic that 98% of biologists believe in Darwinian evolution. As being the origin of life. Now, there's a lower statistic that says 66% of Americans do not believe that Darwinian evolutionary biology is the origin of life. That's good. That's after 150 years of Darwinian, you know, propaganda. <laughs> but still, our total response to understanding this incredible technology that's in each and our cells is not to glorify God as God, but rather to reject the designer. Or, if we accept it, we at least reject what he wants us to do with that information. But certainly in our scientific communities, we reject that God is the designer. And we claim that the creation itself created itself. That's what Paul's saying, right? That we worship the creation as the creator. Instead of worshiping the designer, the creator. And so it's changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made by by corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. It's amazing, isn't it, that Paul has so eloquently described the world we live in today. But there are scientists like Stephen Meyer who stood up to that, who are continuing to stand up to that, to stand up to this foolish worldview and point to the evidence of a designer, not drawn from religious texts, but from biologists' own research. And it's interesting, in the book, Stephen Meyer talks about the work of uh, Watson and Crick. Yeah. Uh, the, the two gentlemen that discovered the, the double helix of the DNA, the structure of it. And it's, it's interesting, most of their work, in fact, I think maybe all of their work, was garnered on other people's work. They didn't really have a lab other than they used a lab to cut out cardboard pieces to stick things together to see if they would fit. They weren't. They didn't have electron microscopes. They didn't have all this technology. They weren't doing what the scientists would call real science. And in fact, they were annoying the heck out of the scientific community. Because they were asking questions. And the scientific community is like, you're seriously trying to figure out DNA and you don't know this. And so they would gather this information sometimes because somebody felt sorry for them (laughs) and actually gave them the information. And they compiled it together and realized what the pattern of DNA was. That's a lot of what the work of intelligent design scientists are doing. They're saying, hey, this is your research, guys. You came up with this. You showed this. We're just helping you understand it. And they have developed their own labs and they're starting to, to research it themselves. But, but still, this isn't from some religious texts. It's from the biologist's own material. which Of course, is God's material. So I suppose you could say in a roundabout way, DNA is a religious text. But I want to show you a video clip. It's about five minutes long. <laughs> and it gives you an idea of how foolish this evolutionary explanation of life is when looking at one simple part of a cell, uh, the one that, the first one, uh, there's a video with which you audio with it. If I could remember all of it, I'd, I'd, I'd mimic it for you.
1: gradually sloping trail of small steps leading all the way to the summit.
2: According to Dawkins, that's how you'd climb the mountain, and that's also how you'd build a Cambrian animal. One's... Richard Dawkins, the famous Oxford evolutionary biologist, has illustrated how the Darwinian mechanism works using a metaphor he calls climbing Mount Improbable.
1: From the front side, the mountain is a sheer cliff that could never be scaled in one giant leap. For Dawkins, this represents the impossibility of creating a complex animal by chance alone. Yet Dawkins also envisioned an alternative route up the backside of Mount Improbable, a long, gradually sloping trail of small steps leading all the way to the summit.
2: According to Dawkins, that's how you'd climb the mountain. And that's also how you'd build a Cambrian animal, one small step at a time. What chance alone can accomplish in one blind leap, natural selection can accomplish through the cumulative effect of many small incremental
1: steps. In theory, each step corresponds to a small unit of biological change, a new gene and its protein product. But new mutations and natural selection have a reasonable chance of producing even one protein in the time available. Since 1992, molecular biologist Doug Axe has examined this question.
3: There's a story that's being told and there's a appeal in in the case of Darwinism to random mutation and natural selection as being, in vague terms, the mechanism. But if you look at the detail, what kind of mutation can accomplish these transitions? And there, it's important to realize that the one area where we can really nail this down is at the single protein level, where you can actually measure it and if you look at protein structures to get a substantially new protein fold is prohibitively difficult.
1: Each of the thousands of different proteins in nature is actually a chain made from a specific combination of 20 different amino acids. The sequential order of these chemical building blocks is crucial for if they are arranged correctly the chain folds into a functioning three-dimensional molecule But if the amino acids are incorrectly assembled, no protein will form. If proteins are indeed rare among the possible sequences of amino acids, what are the odds that mutations would stumble upon a functional combination of chemicals from the vast number of alternatives? To find out, Axe randomly altered the structure of an enzyme protein comprised of 150 amino acids
2: you've got the protein 150 amino acids long then you've got 20 to the 150th power possible ways of arranging the amino acids out of all those possibilities how many are functional and how many are gibberish if you do the experiments and you
3: analyze how much information is required to get say a new protein fold it's just far beyond what you can get by random mutation in natural selection
1: how far beyond Axe published his findings in the Journal of Molecular Biology. He determined that among all the possible amino acid combinations, the probability of generating just one short protein by mutation is roughly one in ten to the 74th power. Or one chance in a hundred trillion, 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 trillion.
2: To put that in context, there's only 10 to the 65 atoms in the entire galaxy. So to build a new functional protein by selection and mutation within the time allowed for the Cambrian explosion, what you're essentially having to do is equivalent to a blindfolded man looking throughout the entire galaxy for one marked atom. So what we're talking about is searching for a tiny tiny needle in in an enormous haystack and and having a very limited time to search.
3: so on the question of something like the cambrian explosion there does not appear to be any way that unguided random mutations can accomplish what needs to be accomplished to explain new functional proteins and certainly by extension wherever in the history of life you would need to have multiple new protein folds the probabilities multiply so there's no reason to think that this is plausible
0: So just a little test. How many trillions was that? I counted like, uh, yes, 10 to the 74th power, or one chance in 100 trillion, 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 I think. It's a lot. And that's just to arrive at one protein, right? One protein. And the average cell is, uh, needs about 150 to 250 protein to function. So, I don't know how to do all the, to the power of with that. That's insane. Foolish ideas, foolish thoughts. God has given them over to foolishness. One of the things that's interesting about Meyer's approach when he's talking about Darwinian theory or actually when he's even examining um, intelligent design is that he uses a mechanism that Darwin used which is that he he identifies a known um, cause, an existing cause that is known to make an effect. So Darwin uses it for evolutionary processes, but if you take that same tool, Meyer uses it to say, all right, we have a known cause of design, and we apply that to biological history. And of course, that is what he's done, using that as a tool to examine similar effects in history. And Meyer uses that known causes of information and code as a lens to examine the data in a cell. And we know from information technology that there is only one cause for code, for for information, intelligence. There has been no other cause for sequential information, code, in the history of the world. In all of our books and records and observations from many different cultures, there's one cause, and that's intelligence. So intelligence is the best explanation for the origin of the digital information that's in DNA. And if that's true, well, that's that's the game, isn't it? That That's it. Uh, I have one more clip. <clears throat> uh, this one is a little shorter. And in it, uh, there's an explanation um, by Myers of what I've, I've just mentioned, and he goes, deeper into this information just just a little bit so it's about 3 minutes
2: If you look at an effect um, and you want to explain it, you want to explain it using the historical scientific method by reference to a cause that is known to produce that effect, the effect in question. So when we're looking at the origin of life, uh, many biologists, biochemists, origin of life researchers in particular say the central thing that we need to explain is the origin of the information that makes life tick, that makes it run. What runs the show in biology is information much of it encoded digitally in the DNA molecule we're also learning that there's other forms of information organized hierarchically in other parts of the genome and even beyond the genome but it's very I used to ask my students you know if you want to give your computer uh, a new functionality a new function uh, what do you have to give it of course they knew: code you have to give it information and the same thing is true in life if you want uh, to produce life in the first place if you want to develop a new form of life from a pre-existing form of life you have to provide information and so the question is where does that information come from and uh, original life researchers are in particular acutely aware of this problem since 1953 when Watson and Crick elucidated the structure of DNA and also showed in subsequent years that DNA functions like a digital code in a section of software, or even a section of alphabetic text uh, that, that w- once they established that, then that raised the question: How did that feature of life arise? if you 're going to explain the origin of life you 've got to ex- explain its salient features. Its salient feature is arguably the presence of digital information in DNA. DNA encodes the proteins that do all the important jobs in the cell. So where did that information come from? Since the 1950s origin of life biologists have realized the central thing they have to explain is, is the origin of information. Model after model has stumbled uh, or even come to a grinding halt, has failed to explain precisely that feature of life. And so as I got into the, the topic of the origin of life, I realized that was that was really the central question. And as I was studying how scientists developed their theories to explain the origin of the first life, I, I realized that, that uh, what was needed was a causal explanation for, for that that feature of life and I began to think more about this dictum that, that Darwin and Lyell had that we should be explaining things by reference to presently known causes presently acting causes and I asked myself the question what is the presently acting cause of digital code? what's the, what's the known cause of information generally? and what we know from uniform and repeated experience which is the basis of all scientific reasoning in the past about the past is that is that information always comes from an intelligent source digital information for sure we know it comes from programmers but information generally always comes from an intelligent source so by using darwin's rule of reasoning I concluded that the best explanation for the origin of the information necessary to build the first life is actually intelligence what we now call intelligent design
0: And if you got lost in there, the book is even more interesting because he goes uh, into all the specifics very, very deep. Um, So I want to move on because uh, I think I'm running out of time. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we're very familiar with it. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, And without him, nothing was made that was made. And in the light of what we've just listened to, in light of what we've just heard, why is that? Well, that's because there was an intelligent source. There was an intelligence. He was the programmer that entered into the cell the DNA information, the code of life. That information, that rich process that would function and operate within the larger organism that we call man. All built according to God's design. And it's interesting also that even evolutionary biologists who are trying to find materialistic causes for DNA look for a single moment in time when the process went from just a chain of amino acids, from a chemical process, to a biological process. They're looking for that moment of life. And yet we have it. We have it in Genesis. It's right there. It's when God breathed into Adam. When he booted Adam up for the first time. Running on his brand new software called DNA. Created by an intelligent source. It was that moment he breathed life into him. But that code started to function and operate. and became a living being. You know, and John said, in him was life, and the light was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. And, you know, light, we use light to illuminate things. But we also use electron microscopes to illuminate things. And when scientists did that, they found this structure, an amazing structure within the cell that they just never knew was there. And we're learning more and more about that, the rich information system that was programmed in there in the beginning. Isaac Newton said this, and I find this a fascinating, fascinating quote. Of course, he believed in God. Isaac Newton believed that science could show the manifest works of God. And he's one of the fathers of modern science. And he said, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then, finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary while as the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. And he was looking for the truth. How, how close do you think evolutionary biologists are to really understanding the truth? They're just shuffling around on the beach, obsessing over how that shell could have materialistically formed from the preceding. So you may ask, why is this important for us to understand? Why is this important? what, What use is this information for your Christian life, for your walk in this world? Some of that should be obvious. Biology, evolutionary biology, materialism, and the idea that we were not created by an intelligent design invades every facet of life. It affects our legal system. If you want to read about that, I would suggest you, you read Darwin Day in America. It affects our legal system. It affects our, our medical system. And assumptions that we make about the effectiveness of med- medicine and what it will do to the human body. It affects, to terrible levels, our food supply and what is being done chemically to our food. And it affects, of course, to astronomical levels, what is being done to the unborn. Because all of these things find their home, their origin, in the origin of species. And Darwin's version of the origin of species. The number now is uh, on abortion is almost up to the population of the United Kingdom that have been aborted in the United States. It's almost 60 million people. <coughs> terrible effects of Darwinian evolution on the society, on our community. But why else is this important? (coughs) Well, it's important because you may have felt at times that the world around you was changing. Right? You may have felt that, that the community at large is deteriorating. It's getting worse. That morals are declining. That what was right is now wrong, and what was wrong is now right. And that things are changing in our society, and and the underpinning of our society feels like it's coming apart. And I agree with that. I think that is happening. But there's something else going on. You are being recoded. What happened in evolutionary biology, or what happened in the Cambrian explosion, I should say, is that, in spite of evolutionary biology, and the theory of how life began and how it translates from one species to another, the Cambrian explosion presented all new life at one moment, without any preceding versions. It just exploded on the scene, with brand new species coming out of nowhere. That is happening to us. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Let me find my scripture here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 16, it says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet we don't know him according to the flesh any longer. Of course, we know him through the Spirit. Therefore, as every, everyone is in, that is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A new creation. And I don't think that we sometimes, we don't stop and think what that means. If we we take it from a biological sense, we're being reprogrammed. Our spiritual DNA is being adjusted and manipulated to arrive at a new type of being. A being that has never been manifested before in this exact same way. Christ was the first fruit. So the designer is injecting into us new information, isn't he? He's injecting into us new code, new form of life into us, just as he has done in the past, in the Cambrian explosion and another time. He's injecting us with that new code. And it's changing us. And it's changing us in a way that makes us incompatible with the world around us. And why is that? Why is that? Well, let's skip forward. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather let it be healed. And in dropping down to verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that, they would, that it should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not ignore that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I am exceedingly fearful and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Who are registered in heaven, to God the Judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the Mediator of a new covenant, and to the uh, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We are being recreated. We are being infused with new code, changed, no longer compatible with this world. Because we are being made compatible with the next. And if you'll remember, what happened if somebody was an idolater or a a whoremonger or adulterer? All, All of those sinners that were outside of the city, they couldn't enter. They could not enter into that city. Because the environment is not for them. It is for us. It is for us if we were being remade, recodified through the spirit of Christ Jesus working in us. And all of this is for a purpose. It is for our redemption. But the scriptures I had to skip for today show us that it is for the redemption of the whole world. That this creation groans, waiting for the adoption of the sons of God waiting for that manifestation of the new code functioning in us, bringing about that new world. You see, the more that we are recoded for the new world, the less compatible we are with the old. And there's something fitting about that. There's something exciting about that. This is the work that Christ Jesus is performing In us, Stephen Meyer is right. There is a signature in the cell, but God has not stopped creating. He's not stopped signing his name. He has been remaking each one of us, each Christian, into a new creature, injecting into us this new life giving information, this new form of DNA. He is making us into living examples of the designers.